Welcome to the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast, where we invite you into a journey of healing and personal transformation that will radically change your divorce experience, heal your heart while refining your character, and set you up to be effective and feel empowered as you navigate the practical and emotional challenges of divorce. I'm your host, Karen McMahon, founder of Journey Beyond Divorce. My divorce brought me to my knees, and it also transformed me and set me on this path to help you. Our team of JBD coaches support men and women to engage in divorce with more calm, clarity, and confidence through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. Not every couple is right for collaborative divorce. While you're both using attorneys, you want to make sure that there's a balance of power on the two sides. If one spouse feels very intimidated by the other spouse or that they can't be heard or um, get their point across, it's going to be difficult for them to be in this process. The other thing is that there has to be some modicum of trust. Since we're not using the court system to arbitrate or to make decisions for us, we have to be sure that both parties are happy with the information that each side is producing, which means that there has to be complete transparency. At Journey Beyond Divorce, we understand that navigating through the emotional tsunami of separation and divorce is one of the hardest journeys you'll take. And we know that once the initial fear and pain begins to pass, a whole new storm of confusion, uncertainty, and self-doubt can surface. Journey Beyond Divorce can help you identify and clarify where you're feeling stuck and what steps you need to move forward even if they're just baby steps. We guide you with practical, tangible support that you can start implementing right away. Our team of experienced divorce coaches is ready to help you. Listen through the show because we have a gift just for you. It'll help you navigate your divorce with more calm and confidence. I'm really excited about today's show. We ended off our last show talking about the uh, the, land, the legal landscape and all of the different ways that one can go about getting a divorce. And today is uh, we're focusing on the collaborative approach to divorce, which is about staying out of court and divorcing with a spirit of open communication and creative problem solving. And with us today is Beth Delena who is a partner in her firm Delena and Bosch and has been in the field of law for over 30 years and her area her specialty is matrimonial and family law and she's especially an expert in the area of collaborative divorce Beth has built a thriving practice based on the founding principles of ethics and best practices and has become a pillar in her community and an exemplary 
attorney. And we're really excited to have her here today to share her experience and wisdom around the collaborative law process. And before I welcome Beth, I just want to suggest to our listeners that this show is going to be so chock full of information. I really encourage you to grab a pen and a piece of paper. We're going to be talking about what collaborative law is, uh, who is the best fit for it, and how the process unfolds and works. And so uh, welcome, Beth. Very excited to have you here. Well, thank you for having me here. It's a wonderful opportunity to talk about a new way of getting divorced for most of us. Excellent. Absolutely. Let's start with the, the, the basics, Beth. Uh, what is collaborative law? Well, collaborative law is a divorce process where people come to the table and sign a participation agreement. By signing that participation agreement, they're taking a pledge with each other to get their divorce resolved without using the court system. That means that they're agreeing to sit down and negotiate all of their issues in good faith at the table, at the settlement table, maybe with the use of some other professionals, but not with the help of a judge or the court system. So what does that mean exactly? Most people think if I'm getting divorced and I'm doing it legally, the court has to be involved. So, so what's the difference? Well, the difference is that to get a final judgment of divorce, at least here in the state of New Jersey, you do need a judge to sign off on a divorce judgment. But the, the process by which you get there does not have to be one court appearance after another after another. You can negotiate in the comfort of somebody's law office or mediation office and resolve your differences without using the court system. Okay, so so that's really interesting. When you, if if a, one of our listeners wants to um, consider a collaborative law, what what are the things that you would encourage them to look at and think about to see whether or not their personality, the personality of their spouse, and their circumstances mm -hmm. was a good fit for collaborative the collaborative process. That's a good question because not every couple is right for collaborative divorce. While you're both using attorneys, you want to make sure that there's a balance of power on the two sides. If one spouse feels very intimidated by the other spouse or that they can't be heard or um, get their point across, it's going to be difficult for them to be in this process. The other thing is that there has to be some modicum of trust. Since we're not using the court system to arbitrate or to make decisions for us, we have to be sure that both parties are happy with the information that each side is producing, which means that there has to be complete transparency. And each side has to trust the other, that they're being transparent about the assets, um, the debt, the liability, so that each feels that they have a fair picture going into the negotiations. So those are four really key things, the, a balance of power, a cooperative uh, perspective, uh, transparency on both sides, and some trust. Now, what's the, what is the, um, 
what is the role of the collaborative attorney uh, with your client? As okay. how is it? How is it different? Okay, that's a good question as well because. You are an advocate as a collaborative attorney. You're an advocate for your client, but you're not an advocate in the same way that you are when you go into the court system and you're zealously advocating a position. In the collaborative process, you're able to look at the whole picture and you're look, able to look at what's best for the family along with maybe what works for your particular clients. So in a litigation standpoint, the attorney is looking to win something for his client, to get his or her client in the best possible position that they can be in. That's not always true in the collaborative process. In the collaborative process, we're looking to do what's best for the family. So it changes your perspective a little bit in how you negotiate. You know, we were talking about that earlier, and it's interesting because what I'm hearing you say is that as a collaborative attorney, while you're still representing your client, you have a broader, almost more holistic perspective looking for a win-win-win, you know, where where both, both parties are getting a fair deal and the children are winning as well. That's correct. The children are really silent parties to most divorces that take place in the courthouse. In the collaborative process, their needs are very much um, at the center of what we're doing when we negotiate. Okay. So let me ask you this. Uh, I know that uh, at Journey Beyond Divorce, we we tend to deal with clients, a lot of clients who are in very high conflict marriages and as a result, fairly turbulent divorces. Can you talk a little bit about who in that situation might be a, a good fit versus the red flags where, it would, where you would suggest definitely not? Sure. If there's been any kind of violence between the parties, any physical violence or what one would characterize as emotional abuse, that's not a good candidate for a collaborative divorce. The high conflict uh, personalities can possibly go into this process as long as they're willing to act respectfully, be transparent, be cooperative communicate fairly and be able to look at the big picture. If they can do that, they can be a good candidate, even if it's a high conflict marriage. Okay. But if someone's digging their heels in or if they're hiding funds or anything along those lines, then not so much. You're right. If somebody comes in and has an interview with me about a collaborative case and they tell me that they need to win at any cost, um, that person doesn't sound to me like somebody who can look at the big picture and maybe rethink his or her position. So I've had a number of clients who've gone through the collaborative process, and I know you and I talked about this the other day, and uh, 
and I was I was a little bit surprised when they had reached out to me because some of those red flags that you said just seemed really obvious to me right away. And uh, and so there's there's two different questions I have. One is I think they entered the collaborative process believing it would be uh, less expensive, and I want you to talk about that in a minute. But but they also um, they they met with their collaborative attorneys and were encouraged to enter the process and then just spent a long time and a lot of money and uh, and ended up in court. And so as a collaborative attorney, what do you do when someone comes to you to to help that that person determine whether or not uh, you even want to take the case on if it makes sense for them to be in the process? Well, our first visit, Karen, is generally a full hour where the client is interviewing me and I'm interviewing the client about what they're looking to get out of this divorce. We talk generally about goals and we generally talk about interests versus positions. If somebody is so set on a position that I can't get them to recognize that there's an underlying interest and there may be different ways to satisfy that interest without taking a hardline position, if I can't talk the person off of that in the first visit, I'm not sure it's a good candidate for collaborative. And even if they tell me they want to go that route, I encourage them maybe not to go that route because... I don't think it'll be successful for them. Okay. So that's great because I think that's what our our listeners, you know, it's so frightening going into how do I figure out what the right approach is and, and even know the right questions to ask. And so, so that's really helpful to just know how you you're looking at it and how they might approach some of their questions when they meet with a collaborative attorney. So let's talk a little bit. No, go ahead. There is a big downside to entering the process if you're not a good candidate, and that is if the process fails and you need to go into litigation, all of the professionals in your collaborative case are disqualified. You have to start all over again from scratch, which could be very expensive and take a much longer time for you to get to the end. So that's interesting. I think a lot of people are probably cocking their head to the side and saying, well, what's that all about? That's in the participation agreement. Once you agree to enter the collaborative process and your spouse agrees to enter the collaborative process, the attorneys prepare a participation agreement. And that agreement says very clearly that you're going to bargain in good faith and use the process to get to your end and become divorced. In the event that either party wants to withdraw from the process because they want to use the court system, everybody who's already in the case is completely disqualified and cannot further represent any party to the case. So it's extremely expensive to start collaboratively and then decide that it's not working and you want to litigate because you're paying for the costs all over again and you're paying retainers all over again and any work product can't be used. So that's a reason to stay at the table. And that's what makes um, a collaborative divorce different from a regular divorce where two attorneys are just trying to settle the case. You have incentive 
to stay at the table, even if it looks like you're at impasse, because starting all over again would be expensive and time consuming. Well, you know, I think... uh that's such a critical point for people to understand. I think that on, what I'm hearing is on the one side, it's a strong motivator for everyone to keep forging forward and and coming to a settlement that everyone can agree on. On the other hand, it makes it all the more important to determine up front whether or not this is a process that's going to work for you because it's got some pretty rigid rules on uh, on the back end of it. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's say we enter the collaborative process and somebody hires you. Can you walk us through the unfolding of what the collaborative process looks like? What What's the first thing that happens after I retain you? Okay. The first thing that I would do is find out who I'm going to be working with, who your spouse retained. And I would want to know if it was someone that I had worked with before, that I had a good experience with, (laughs) someone that I worked before and maybe didn't have a great experience with. Um, It's important that the attorneys each know how the other side works. Um, After, if I were to determine that I could work well with the person on the other side, the first thing we would do is prepare that participation agreement in anticipation of our first collaborative meeting. And at that first meeting, um, the parties would sit down, the two attorneys and the two uh, spouses, and we would talk about an overview. What does this case look like? What are the issues that need to be resolved? And do we need to bring in additional professionals to get us to the finish line? In what capacity we want to bring those professionals in? And who we might designate as those other professionals that are going to help us get to the end of the case. And we might also do some goal setting in the first meeting to talk about each party's goals in the divorce, where they see themselves at the end, the the day after the divorce, what is a good outcome for them. That's important for us to talk about right up front so that we have a mission in the case, we have a goal, and we have an end that we're trying to achieve for each of the clients. I would imagine that's a really helpful conversation to see how far far apart they may be, where someone might have a lot of emotional energy around something that they're wanting or or mm-hmm. getting stuck on. And so that, that really gives you... you uh, it sounds like a really nice landscape for what's ahead. Well, it is, and it helps the attorneys to be prepared to navigate the most difficult of the issues and in advance to know, are we going to need help from a financial professional? Are we going to need help from um, a mental health professional on a custody issue? Are we going to need help from someone to evaluate a business? It's important to know all that up front so we can structure what other professionals are going to become involved. 
so I've often heard of uh, these meetings referred to as four ways, and I've often heard the parties that you just mentioned um, referred to as neutrals. And so if a four way is me and my attorney, you and your attorney sitting down and having that initial conversation, uh, can you talk a little bit uh, in more depth about the neutrals that might these other professionals that might be invited in? Um, uh, yes. I know one client of mine referred to having a, a child specialist at the, at the table. Yes. That would be in a case where we've identified that there's going to be an issue with custody and parenting time. And generally, whether you have a, an, a strong issue about custody or parenting time, what you can get the parties to agree to at that first meeting is that they want to do what's best for their children. They want to do something that is going to be in the children's best interest. So to do that, rather than have each party hire their own expert, we pick a neutral, we pick a child specialist, a mental health professional that has some background in children's issues to work with the parties to determine based on the ages of the children and the emotional connections that the children have to the parents, what is going to be best for the children. So instead of paying for two uh, experts, we're putting our faith in one expert to tell us what's in the best interest of the children. And then we're going to use that to put together a parenting plan that's going to work for mom, dad, and for the kids. Okay. And then what about on the financial front? What does an expert look like there? We have a lot of different ways that financial people serve to help us at the table. Sometimes you need a forensic person and the parties don't understand what the cash flow looks like because they're writing off a lot of their expenses through the business. It might be a family business. It might be a business that uh, one of the spouses has a major stake in. But sometimes you need a forensic person so that we can look at the cash flow and that will help us determine what support might look like. Other times we need a planner because there's going to be tax implications based on what we do in a divorce. And that planner is going to help us deal with how we're going to look at the taxes and what that means for each of the parties afterwards. Other times we need somebody to do evaluations, evaluations of businesses, evaluations of uh, pensions or uh, other um, restricted stock, things like that, that the average person doesn't have a handle on value, uh, tax implications, volatility risk. And sometimes we'll use a financial expert to help us understand that clearly so we know what we're negotiating. Perfect. And then I know you also have another person that comes to the table. Uh, they're called a divorce coach, although they do, do something very different than uh, me and my team at Journey Beyond Divorce. Can you describe that? Yes, we use divorce coaches quite often. And sometimes they're at the table with us and sometimes they're working with the couple separately not at the table, but maybe before a session or after a session. 
Um, these divorce coaches will help the parties communicate better with each other, will help manage the emotions, especially if you're at the table negotiating a very hot issue, a very important issue where the parties are, you know, on opposite sides of the spectrum. If, if, the attorneys believe that the session will become heated. We like to have a divorce coach there who will sort of refocus each of the parties, help to keep the temperature down, and help for each party to really hear what's being said so that they're hearing it the way everybody else is hearing it, not with their own spin. Every divorce has its unique challenges. Having helped people in many different high-conflict divorces, I know that when children and alcohol are involved, the situation becomes even more challenging. Whether you are concerned about child safety when an ex is co-parenting, or trying to prove your sobriety for custody, finding a reliable system that you trust can be difficult. That's why I love and recommend Soberlink. Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system makes it easy to document sobriety in real time, ensuring child safety and providing tangible evidence of sobriety to the court as needed. It's easy to use and has features like facial recognition, tamper detection, and advanced reporting that all work together to improve your life during this difficult time. To help those in my audience who are going through divorce with children, I've worked with Soberlink to develop five tips for divorces involving children that you can download at www.soberlink.com backslash JBD. So really managing the client's emotions, like like you're saying, either beforehand in preparation mm-hmm. of a meeting afterwards in the in the aftermath of it or right there in the middle of the the hot topic that you're negotiating. And the other thing I yes. understand is that the divorce coaches in the collaborative process uh, are mental health experts. Yes, they're generally mental health experts. We use psychologists, social workers, but they're licensed professionals. Right. And just for our listeners who've been listening in for a while, uh, while they have the same label as Lisa, myself and my team, uh, the big difference is I've worked with people going through the collaborative process, but never with both parties. That's what the collaborative divorce coach does. So we would work with you uh, on the side to help you get clear, be that sounding board, help you um, feel stronger in your confidence and, and having your voice heard and that kind of thing. Uh, and so we've I've worked with people who have had a divorce coach at the table, but also uh, enlisted our support uh, just to to shore up their own voice and confidence as they go into that negotiation. And so that's just a little bit about the difference. Yes, that's correct. A lot of our clients that are using a divorce coach at the table also are working with a private therapist on their own on the outside. 
Exactly. So you could work with a therapist or a divorce coach on the outside, and that way you're getting all the support that that you need to do this as well as possible. I want to just take you back for a second to the to the goal setting because I think that sounds just a little bit. Um, if we could put some teeth to that. So when you when you talk about goal setting, what are some of the key goals that you talk to your clients about at the table? When we're at the table, the clients are identifying important goals to them. And I'll give you uh, an actual example. Many times, both parties will come to the table and the goal will be to keep the marital home. The goal is not, I want to stay in the marital home, or I think you should stay in the marital home, but the goal would be that the children are um, very secure and happy in the marital home, and if there's a way to save it so that the children have some stability and don't have to change their schools and their friends and their activities, many times a couple will say that that's important to them, and they're looking to structure a settlement that allows them to somehow keep the marital home. So that would be a goal that we would strive towards. Um, We would try to work equitable distribution or support in such a way that we could achieve that goal. So I see what you're saying right away about the difference between interests and positions, because no one's saying, Mm -hmm. I want to be there for this amount of time, but rather, let's see if we can work toward this happening and how it happens Mm -hmm. is what we're open to negotiating. That's right. So if you have something that you're negotiating towards and you can remind the parties at each of the meetings that we come to that this is a goal for your children to keep them stable and well-adjusted and in their same school system, we continue to work in that direction. And so other goals could be around um, a, a stay-at-home mom and or, or dad and when they oh, want to sure. go back to work or how long they want to yeah. be able to stay with the kids, things like that. Things like that. If um, Maybe the dependent spouse would like to um, reinvent himself or herself, uh, take some courses, go back to school. That could be a goal to become self-supporting at a future point in time. And we would work towards that. Um, Other goals might be um, to financially sever ties. That's a goal that we sometimes work towards where everything is so commingled and interdependent that one spouse says, I want to achieve a financial separation so that we can each become dependent with our pools of money and not have to have so much communication about finances in the future. Gotcha. So what if a goal of one of your parties is I want justice? He wronged me. She wronged me. I would really question whether that is a proper case for collaborative. And, you know, if we identified that these were good candidates for collaborative and that still was an issue, the attorneys would talk about the fact that the idea of collaborative is to structure a settlement that really doesn't have any bearing on who's at fault, who did what to whom, because that doesn't really get you anywhere in the negotiations. People get focused and stuck on those issues, and we don't move forward towards settlement. So we put those aside. 
Right. And I just want to say to our listening audience, no matter what approach you're taking to divorce, um, to get divorced, there's no justice in divorce. And even if you go through the courts, through litigation, divorce isn't about justice. It's really about the allocating of marital assets, parenting time um, and and support and and maintenance. And so if you're feeling really hurt and angry, that makes a whole lot of sense. And that's a place where uh, a mental health expert or divorce coach can really help you work through that to spend your hard earned money paying for attorneys hoping to get justice through any of the processes is going to leave you rather disappointed. Would you agree? That's right. I would agree 100%. And divorce coaches can be so helpful in dealing with those issues. So so they've set goals. Going back to what the, the unfolding of the process, you guys meet, mm-hmm. you hear what their goals are, you assess whether or not to bring in um, any, any neutral professionals to help out. Where do you mm-hmm. go from there? All right. So let's say that we are going to begin with a financial piece as opposed to a custody piece. If we have determined that we need a financial professional to assist us with cash flow, we might have the parties develop a budget together as to what the costs are to maintaining the marital home. And then we might bring a financial professional into the next session where the parties have prepared budgets and looked at what the needs are in the marital home. And we might have that financial professional sort of go over the budgets in the session to talk about different ways of accomplishing what we need to do. You know, it's more expensive to run two households than one. So if a a couple wants to keep the marital home, we have to be able to find a way to do it at a less expensive rate than what they're doing it as a couple. And that's where the financial person can help us out um, in terms of maybe refinancing, in terms of um, maybe different ways of cutting things from the budget without making a big difference to lifestyle. So the next meeting after that might be the parties sort of rethinking what they can do with their budget and coming to terms about what the cost of the marital home is. If the dependent spouse is staying there, what kind of support will be necessary for the dependent spouse to stay there in the home? So uh, on the financial front, uh, to back up just a little bit, uh, I I know when they're when you go through the court system, they have you fill out this document called a net worth statement. You're talking a lot about the finances and a huge portion of divorces about finances. How do you mm-hmm. how do you help a client wrap their brain around all of that information and and help them bring it to you in a way that's um, that's productive and effective? We use some simpler budgeting sheets when we talk about support or um, keeping the marital home and that whole asset structure of what we have in a 401k, what we have in savings accounts. I, as a practitioner, try to look at that 
at two different times and not all at once. It is a lot for people to handle all at once that we're looking at these assets and what we're going to do with them. And we're looking at cash flow and what we're going to do with that. I like to approach that separately. Yeah, because I know that can be such an overwhelming part. And it's certainly mm-hmm. a place where there's just oodles of fear in everybody, it seems, because you're going to mm-hmm. be splitting because it's going to be split up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we sort of like to deal with cash flow first. And if there's not enough cash flow to do what we want to do, then we might get into our asset structure and say, can we pull from assets to make this a reality? And if the answer is no, maybe that goal of keeping the marital home is not a valid goal for the couple. And that's when that's where looking at the goals and then coming back and reassess is really helpful because it's it sounds yes. like you guys actually walk people through that thought process so that they understand mm-hmm. what's what's reasonable and what's not. And Correct. So then so then you've set priorities, you've set goals, now you're setting priorities and you're creating an agenda. Uh, what happens mm-hmm. next? Well, there, I'm glad you said agenda because every single meeting that we have collaboratively has an agenda. So both parties are prepared to speak as to their thoughts on the agenda items. And at every meeting, one of the parties to the table takes notes or minutes of the meeting. So we always keep a good record and a good history of what we talked about. After we've talked about some of the issues, we begin to put together different options for settlement. And we begin to explore these options collaboratively, collectively, to talk about the pluses and the minuses of each option, each of the options. At the end of the day, the clients are going to decide which of the options that we can develop as a collaborative team work for them. But we like to try to explore several different options of getting them to their goal so that they can see that there are better options, there are worse options, some are more difficult, some flow better for their family, and they choose at the end what's going to work for them. You know, as you're describing it, it sounds like a really... uh nice process to the degree that getting divorce is a nice process. It sounds uh, like there's this team approach, that there's this open-mindedness, that there's this looking at multiple choices and allowing people to see that that they're not so stuck, that they have some control mm-hmm. in the direction mm-hmm. that the settlement is designed in. And so that all sounds really nice. It is good. And what that does is the whole process by which we explore goals and develop options is a learning process for the parties. And generally, that helps them to learn how to work with each other after the divorce. So when there's bumps in the road with their plan, they know the kinds of conversations they need to have or how they can solve these minor problems after the divorce. So it's almost like a, a, a training course in creative problem solving while you're creatively mm-hmm. solving your divorce. Correct. Yeah, that's great. Now, what happens if you get stuck? Like if they're, they're definitely, you know, they're, they're good candidates for collaboration. But mm-hmm. let's say one of those hot topics are on the table and you're going back and forth and, and it seems pretty stuck. What do you do? Mm-hmm. 
Well, there's a couple of different ways to get through an impasse. Sometimes we can bring in a mediator. There is a place for mediation within the collaborative process. And sometimes a fresh set of eyes looking at uh, an issue, that word impasse, can make all of the difference. Sometimes it means that the parties are not going to maybe work at the collaborative table with the attorneys, but they might work by themselves with the financial professional if the impasse is over finances. Because that financial professional, without the attorneys being involved, might have ideas and thoughts that the parties can talk about that could help end the impasse. Um, Of course, if there's an impasse that you can't resolve at all, um, you're either going to end the process or you're going to reevaluate the goals that you had in the first place. Maybe the impasse could be because you picked a goal that just is not attainable with your set of facts. You got to go back to the drawing board and say, we're at impasse. We can't get to this goal. Let's choose a different goal. Right. Gotcha. So I'm curious about the time frame. Uh, I know that when you go through the court system, uh, my divorce took three and a half years, and and I was told that it would only move as uh, fast as the slowest party. What's mm-hmm. the what's a typical time frame when you're going through collaborative? The nice thing about collaborative is that the parties are going to set the time frame. So when we start out and we have that first meeting about goal setting, we're going to set some dates aside for the next couple of meetings. So if the parties say that we want to do some thinking on our own, we want to do some exploring and get some information, it's going to take us a month to do that because somebody's traveling. You're going to set a date that works for everybody that's as far out as you need it to be. You retain complete control. You're not waiting for a court date. You're not worried that if a court date gets adjourned, you're not going to get a date for another four months. You're sitting down and you're setting every one of your dates. Some cases are simple cases, and they can be resolved in a couple of meetings. More complex cases might take five, six, eight, nine meetings, depending on the complexity of the issues and the number of additional professionals we need to bring in. And, and how long does a session typically go? Oh, just the time you sit, the time you're sitting down. I like to limit my sessions to two hours because I think that it's emotionally draining, and I think that you make very little progress after a two-hour period of time. Okay, so about a two-hour session, and that's probably everyone's saturated at that point and needs needs to process. Yes, and there absorb. are times when you're making a lot of progress. You might want to go a little longer, but not usually. Gotcha. And there is a, a belief amongst many that collaborative is definitely less expensive than litigation, and that's a good reason to go through the collaborative process. What's your what's your thought on that? My thought is that. It's not always that it's going to come out less expensive, but what you have to consider in the expenses is what you're getting for your money. I always present to the clients that if you litigate, 
you might pay me to go to court. I might be there for eight hours and I might be in front of the judge for a half an hour. I have to bill you for the eight hours. In the collaborative setting, every hour that you pay for me to work for you, I'm actually working for you. I'm at the table negotiating. There is no downtime. There is no wait time. And you're getting a good value for your dollar. Also, you're not hiring separate experts. We're using neutrals. So you're sharing the cost of the experts among the family resources. So it's a better bang for the buck. It's not always less expensive. Much of the time it is, but that reason alone is not a good reason to enter the process. Okay, good. That's a great point to make. And, you know, Beth, you could have gone into other avenues of divorcing. Why did you choose collaboration? I think it's a process that works. I think that our court system is designed to address criminal issues. I think it's well designed to address slip and falls and medical malpractice cases. But when you're talking about the breakup of a family and highly emotionally charged issues, I don't think the court system is the appropriate place for a breakup of a family to happen. Number one, it's public. You know, number two, there are filings that if somebody wanted to go and look at the filings, they could. And number three, judges are overwhelmed with other cases and they get to know a snippet of you by what you file or by how you present at a hearing and they're making some of the most important decisions for you that are going to impact the rest of your life. I think the clients should be making those decisions, not courts. And I think that people are not equipped to do that. So by using attorneys, collaboratively trained attorneys, and by using specific experts that are needed for the issues in your case, you're getting a better settlement agreement. And 98% of cases settle anyway. They don't go to trial. So if you're going to settle your case, why not do it with the right people in the right setting on the right timeline in a private environment where not everybody else is going to know your business? Right. And you're describing uh, that you're really creative problem solvers who are looking at those goals and then coming up with a lot of creative ways of meeting them. And so that's a really nice partnership if you're going through divorce to think that you could partner with an attorney who has a huge heart to help the whole family and to Mm -hmm. be really creative so that you have as many choices as possible to choose from. I would agree. And I would say that the attorneys who are inspired to become collaboratively trained and work with clients, we don't do this and we are not in this business because we want to become millionaires. We do this because we love it. We like to uh, help and we like to be creative in coming up with whole family solutions as opposed to a win. Well, that's and that is a great segue, because before we wrap up, I was really hoping that you could give our listeners some tips on how to choose the right if they're going through the collaborative process, how to choose the right collaborative attorney for them. What would you suggest? 
I would suggest that they look in their area. There are websites um, for collaborative practice that will show what attorneys in your particular area are trained as collaborative practitioners. And you should visit some of them, at least three of them, and have a frank discussion with them to see if you like their style, if you like the way they communicate, if you like their office, if you feel comfortable picking up the phone and asking a question, because it really comes down to how well you can communicate your needs, your emotions, and your fears to your attorney that's going to help guide you through the process. If it's not a comfortable fit and you don't feel uh, at ease on the phone or opening up to them, you're only going to get as good of a result as you can make yourself known, as you can make your needs known and your desires. So should be a good fit. And it might you might interview three or four people before you say, this is the best fit for me. Yeah, I so agree with you. I think the other things that I, I often recommend, it's this is this is often your first relationship that you're entering into post once you've decided to divorce. And it's really important that you're aware of your needs and that, you know, if you're divorcing someone who's controlling or a bully that you don't go hire a controlling bully person that if you're struggling with someone who who doesn't listen or or who doesn't communicate well that you're getting an attorney that you're clear that you're getting what you need and so even regardless of what approach to really make sure that you're engaging with someone who's who's going to be able to uh, be responsive to be able to communicate to be able to really take the time and energy if, to explain things. I had a client, she was so ADD and she really needed things broken down and speaking slowly and 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 to, to get an attorney who could meet those needs for her made a huge difference in the way in which she went through yeah. the process. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the other thing I would say is trust your intuition. I mean, that's that's so important. Mm-hmm. You may have your friends say, you know, go to Jane. She's the best or go to Bill. He's mm-hmm. the best. And and then you go and you're like, mm, maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. So definitely much. trust your intuition, because at the end of the day, mm-hmm. each of us is different. And what you need may be very different than what your sister or your friend or your, you know, your coworker needed. Yes, I couldn't agree with that more. Well said, Karen. <laughs> so so I I want to ask before I wrap up, is there anything that you didn't get a chance to touch on that you would like to um, to include in terms of the whole collaborative process? Not really. In summary, I would just say that you have so much control today in how your divorce goes and how you're going to come out on the other side. And in this process, you're really using all of the different professional people to give you advice and to make you feel comfortable and to make you feel very sure when you sign that property settlement agreement or marital settlement agreement that you've done the right thing and that you included in that agreement, the things that are most important to you, and you resolve them in a way that that worked for you as opposed to the rest of the population. So you're really customizing an agreement that you can live with for the long haul, as well as 
understanding how to continue to negotiate if there's bumps in the road after the divorce, and there always are. And rather than having to go back to court, to reconnect with the people that helped you get to the finish line is more expedient, less costly, and it just feels better than having to go to court and have a judge decide it when they get to it. Yeah, I just I I love the uh, creative problem solving. I love the team approach and the support that that involves. And I love what you said about it being an opportunity to learn how to problem solve with your ex post divorce. I mean, it just it sounds so rich in terms of what it offers someone and the fact that as someone who went through the litigating process that you're actually paying for only the attorney when the attorney's working for you, which, uh, which is huge. Mm -hmm. It's huge because it's, Mm -hmm. it's not an inexpensive process to begin with. So, so Beth, thank you so much for all of your information. How can our listeners reach out to you if they're interested in learning more about your firm? You're in Northern New Jersey. What town is it again that you're in? I am. I'm in Madison, which is in Morris County, New Jersey. And uh, I practice in the northern part of the state. I have a website. It's uh, DelanaAndBosch.com. And uh, you can email me through the website. You can look at the website. I have a uh, very open office on Main Street in Madison. We get walk-in clients all the time, just asking if I'm available, I'll talk to you about it. If not, you can make an appointment. Um, And we do all facets of the divorce. I am um, very um, interested in increasing collaborative divorce and doing what I can to get more people invested in that process. But if you're not a good candidate for collaborative divorce, we also litigate here and uh, we do mediation, we do arbitration, we do it all. And what's the phone number if someone wants to call in? 973-377-2066. And just uh, if you're saying Delena and Bosch, how do you spell Bosch? Actually, can you just spell out the whole, let's just spell out the whole thing for anyone who's writing it down. All right. D-A-L-E-N-A-B-O-S-C-H dot com. So is it DelenaBosch.com or is it Delena and Bosch? No, it's I Delena don't. and Bosch, but the website is DelenaBosch.com. Beth, thank you so much. This has been incredibly informative and really just you've shared so much good information with us. So I want to thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. I hope you found guidance and encouragement to help you along your journey. If you like my podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also visit us at jbddivorcesupport.com, where our team of coaches support both men and women through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon.